Hello, it's March 31st, 2023. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. If you listened to the minisode I released the day before yesterday, well, the other day, at the end of that episode, I mentioned that today's full-length episode is one of the most disgusting and vile 90s cases I've ever heard. And you may have actually heard of this case, and I had too in the past, but only a little bit of the story. And once I did more research on the case, I was like, what the F? And yeah, also, this case is another case out of Texas, like the Minnesota the other day. But anyway, this case talks about subjects of harsh sexual acts and sexual assault. So listeners discretion is advised. And with that, let's dive in to today's case at your own risk. The year was 1994, and in the Houston suburb of Humble, Texas, many people who moved and lived here thought it was a great place to work and raise a family. The residents here liked Humble because they could enjoy the leisure of the city without all the nearby heavy traffic in Houston. People in Humble also liked to socialize and possibly take a stroll at the nearby botanical gardens. Or, if they had children, many took their kids to the local Old MacDonald farm, where they could have fun interacting at the petting zoo. Lastly, although the cost of living in Umble could be a little pricey, people here didn't seem to mind it so much, because in return, they could have a beautiful home in a nice neighborhood. However, in 1994, an absurd and gross crime would occur at one of the quaint and beautiful homes in Humble. And not only would it make the residents of this city fearful, it would also leave a man one of the most hated in Texas. In the following case, you'll find out what happened at this home, the investigation, and the sad aftermath in a case I title handsome devil. Although this story and case takes place in Texas, Let's go back a few years, around the world, to Surrey, England. 
1961, in Surrey, a couple named Lex and Betty Backer welcomed a beautiful little girl they named Farah Famida Backer into the world on August 5th. According to people who knew the Backer family, they described Farah as the life of the party, even as a very young child, and she was full of life. Growing up, Farah and her siblings were fortunate enough to travel around the world with their parents, and they traveled to places such as Switzerland and Denmark, all the way to Bangladesh. When she became school-aged, Farah was known as a popular girl with lots of charisma, and she had many friends. And by 1978, Farah graduated from high school. She attended college for a short while, but maybe it was due to her early years traveling the world. But Farah decided, by this point, she wanted to work in the travel industry and wanted to become a travel agent. As some sort of luck would have it, around this time in 1980, Farah's father Lex decided he wanted to uproot the family and move to America. Not that they didn't love England, but it had always been a dream of his to live in America, particularly in Texas, because he loved Western movies and always wanted to live where he thought a lot of the cowboys lived. Farah was all for the move, even though she was an adult and could make her own decisions. But moving to America would mean she would have to leave someone she cherished behind, her then fiancé. You see, shortly after Farah graduated high school, she met a man and they fell in love, so much in love that they made plans to marry. However, after Farah decided to move with her family to America in 1981, her fiancé decided to stay back in England, but she hoped he would soon join her. Though she was hurt by the long distance between she and her fiancé, Farah kept moving forward towards her dream career in the travel industry. After she and her family settled in Humble, Texas, within a week of their arrival, Farah was applying for any travel job she can get her hands on, including applying at some of the airlines at the nearby airport. As luck would have it, she got a call back from the staff at American Airlines and was offered a job as a ticket agent. Farah was thrilled and shortly after she was hired, Farah began her position as a ticket agent for the airline. According to reports, even though Farah was considered the life of the party to her loved ones back in England, at work, her co-workers thought she was very shy and timid, but very sweet, and they loved her English accent. Farah got along with co-workers well at American Airlines, but almost as soon as she began, she met a fellow co-worker that would change her world forever, and his name was Robert Frada. According to reports, Robert Frada, nicknamed Bob or Bobby, was a native from the Long Island area of New York. 
and according to another report, after he attained an associate's degree, he began to work for American Airlines, first at JFK Airport in New York City. Then he got transferred to Hartford, Connecticut, to Las Vegas, and then to the airport in Houston. Unlike their first impressions of Farah, when his co-workers, at least in Houston, met Bob, many of them thought he was extremely handsome, very outgoing, very full of himself, and he was known to be a playboy. And Farah wanted to get to know him better because of these attributes. To her co-workers, though, even though opposites can attract, Bob was so different from Farah. And apparently, unbeknownst to her, some of their co-workers knew Bob could have a temper. And they warned her about this, but Farah still wanted to get to know Bob. By this point, and it's unclear who approached who, but Bob also seemed to have an attraction to Farah, and the two began to date, much to the surprise of their fellow staff. Bob, according to reports, wasn't that physically attracted to Farah, but he liked her English charm and how he thought she would treat him well. Bob and Farah eventually became a couple, and the relationship blossomed so well that Farah fawned over Bob and talked about him so well to her parents. Her parents were so happy for Farah, like most parents would, and even happier for her when she and Bob got engaged in 1982. And Farah broke up her engagement with her fiancé, who was still back in England. Farah was over the moon, and Bob seemed to be as well. Just a little over a year after their engagement, Farah and Bob got married in May 1983. The couple looked so happy, and her parents thought the world of Bob, and knew he was the dreamiest son-in-law. After they married, Farah's friends and co-workers were surprised again, because they thought that Bob seemed to change. They saw him as a devoted husband to Farah, and thought he gave up his playboy ways. Shortly after the marriage, Bob decided to change careers, and first became a firefighter, and then a public safety officer for the neighboring city of Missouri City, Texas. And just like many newlyweds, Farah and Bob decided they wanted to expand their family and welcome children. In December 1986, they welcomed their son Bradley to the family, followed by another son Daniel in 1988, and then a daughter Amber in 1999. The Frada family was growing steadily, and to the people who knew them, they thought they were a beautiful family. However, by the time her third child was born, Farah confided to one of her closest friends and co-worker something they weren't really expecting. 
Bob was sort of back to his old ways. It's unclear why she thought this way, but Farah told the friend that she was worried Bob may have been cheating on her, and she told the friend that when she confronted him about it, he denied it. But Bob allegedly told her that it may be a good idea that they have an open marriage. Farah was not keen of this idea, but she loved and wanted to please her husband, so she went along with it, although it's unclear if she had any other lovers herself. As the months went on, though, Farah witnessed increasingly unsettling behavior from Bob, and that was Bob's alleged sexual desires. According to reports, Farah told a friend Bob was into gross sexual play that had to deal with excrements of the body, and he allegedly especially liked when she used the restroom in his mouth. Like many people would react, her friend was stunned and grossed out, but Farah told her she only did it to please him and wanted to keep their marriage together. But as time went on, Farah realized that what Bob wanted her to do sexually was too intense and degrading to her. And even though she expressed this to him, he apparently wouldn't care about her concerns. And soon, Farah had enough. She thought Bob's sexual behavior was so bizarre that she didn't even want the children around him. So in 1992, Farah told Bob it was over and she told him to leave the home, much to Bob's dismay. According to reports, Farah officially fought for divorce in November 1992. And from the start, the split was contentious. Bob was furious that Farah would leave him because he thought Farah was okay with an open marriage. But to Farah, it was what she called sexual deviation that made her leave. Fast forwarding to March 1993, at a custody hearing of their children, Bob, still jilted over Farah leaving, testified he didn't want primary custody of the children, but he wanted joint input over the children's medical and educational choices, and he wanted to keep Farah from moving with their children no further than a 100-mile radius. Farah opposed Bob's requests. After the first few custody hearings, Farah was given primary custody, and Bob was ordered to pay child support, which angered him. It angered him so much that he allegedly told his close friends and fellow gym buddies that he was broke because he had to pay child support for three children. He also allegedly told them that he wanted primary custody. That way, Farah would have to pay child support to him but he knew that wouldn't happen because Farah's parents had money and he would never win that case. By December 1993, during a divorce hearing, 
Farah testified about how Bob wanted her to perform the sexual acts that made her uncomfortable. And she added that he also liked for her to choke him, and he liked for her to do the uncomfortable sexual acts, allegedly on a daily basis. After her testimony and after the hearing was over, Robert was at his wit's end. He allegedly told a friend that what Farah testified at court was not true, and that he didn't want Farah saying such things about him to the public. And by this point, it was no holds barred with Bob. Meanwhile, while the divorce was carrying on, in mid-1994, Farah was at home with the children when the unthinkable happened. One of Farah and Bob's children heard Farah scream and ran to her bedroom. When they got to the bedroom, they found a man wearing a mask standing over their mother, and he used a stun gun on her. By this point, the other children came in and started to cry and scream, begging the man to leave their mother alone. The man eventually left, and Farah thought the whole thing was set up by Bob. So Farah called police and told a detective that she believed her estranged husband was behind the attack. Although Farah and the detective did not have proof that Bob was behind the attack, the detective talked to Bob and warned him to leave Farah alone. But he apparently acted like he didn't know what he was talking about. After the incident, Farah was on edge and scared. She just knew that whoever that masked man was, he was sent by Bob. And she thought the worst would happen to her. However, she thought maybe she was overthinking it, and one day, when she went to work, she asked her co-worker, quote, Do you think Bob will kill me? End quote. Her co-worker tried to calm her down, but as the final custody hearing came close, Farah couldn't shake that something was up. On the night of November 9th, 1994, Farah and the children joined Bob for dinner at a restaurant. When dinner was over, Bob took the children with him to church, and Farah went to a hair appointment. When Bob and the children got to church, reports state Bob left the two youngest children in the church nursery and brought his oldest to a catechism class. During the class, Bob repeatedly excused himself to go to the church office to make and receive telephone calls. Meanwhile, around 8 p.m., Farah pulled back into her driveway after a hair appointment. And shortly after, a 911 call was phoned into a local 
emergency service. And the woman on the other end of the line says she just witnessed her neighbor being shot. When emergency personnel arrived to the home where the victim was shot, they saw the woman lying in her garage bleeding from a gunshot wound. As paramedics were working on the woman, the detective who worked Farah's original case with the stun gun incident raced to the victim's home and realized the shooting victim was Farah Frada. Since her wounds were so severe, paramedics took her by helicopter to the local hospital. And the news about Farah being shot was so shocking that news cameras covered her route from the helicopter to the emergency room. By now, Farah's parents heard the news and rushed to her side. But shortly after Lex and Betty arrived, they learned the heartbreaking news that Farah could not be saved and was dead. When the detectives learned this, they officially declared Farah's death a homicide, and the main detective looked at Bob Frada as a suspect. Speaking of Bob, when he learned of Farah's death, he came to her home and spoke with detectives. He told them that he took the children to church and had no idea who would want to kill Farah. But as he was speaking to detectives, they noticed that unlike many husbands who lose their spouses, Bob seemed to be upbeat and didn't really seem to care about Farah's well-being. In fact, the detective who investigated Farah's stun gun incident was weary of Bob and told him, quote, Bob, I told you to leave her alone. In which Bob responded, I didn't do anything, end quote. When asked if they could search Bob's car, he was more than willing. But detectives found something odd. $1,000 in the glove compartment, in an envelope. When questioned about this, he said it was for new carpeting. But to detectives, they thought it was very coincidental that Bob would have $1,000 in his glove box the night his estranged wife was murdered. To further question him, detectives requested he go to the police station, in which he happily agreed. One question given by detectives to Bob was, quote, What should happen to somebody that kills somebody? In which Bob said, quote, They should go to jail forever. Then the detectives gave the question, What should happen to somebody that has their wife killed? And then Bob responded with the bizarre answer, it depends on the circumstances, end quote. After Bob said this, detectives working Bob's case focused solely on him as the main suspect, because who would ever answer a question like that? However, detectives had some trouble during their investigation, because Bob had a solid alibi. 
He was at church with his kids. When they questioned church members, they backed up Bob's alibi. But detectives weren't finished with Bob yet and secretly followed his patterns around town. Anywhere he went, they went. One place they noticed Bob frequented was no surprise, the gym. With his built physique, Bob focused lots of his time on fitness, and according to people who knew him, he was so in love with his body and looks that he could barely pass a mirror without looking at himself. So, one day during the investigation, detectives questioned gym-goers to see if anyone knew Bob. And to their luck, many of them did. One report states that detectives questioned at least 12 men who frequented the gym. And they told detectives that Bob had recently been going, quote-unquote, shopping around for someone to kill his wife. But they all thought he was just angry about the divorce, not serious, and told him playfully, no. Even after he apparently offered them thousands of dollars up front. Also during the investigation, detectives received a call from some of the church members of Bob's church. And they said, even though he attended service that night, his pager kept going off, and he kept on getting up to use the church phone, which they thought was odd. With this clue, detectives were able to trace whose phone number Bob kept calling, and it led to a woman named Mary Gipp. Who was Mary Gipp, detectives thought? Well, when they called her, Mary was evasive. She said she knew pretty much nothing and ended the conversation. But detectives felt Mary was hiding a major piece of the puzzle. And once again, detectives got another stroke of luck when they found out Mary had a live-in boyfriend named Joseph Pristash, an ex-con. And they learned that he was a member of the same gym as Bob and liked to work out with him. They went to Mary again and questioned her about the relationship between her boyfriend, Joe, and Bob. Mary still wouldn't talk. So detectives turned up the heat and told her they would charge her with having something to do with the murder if she didn't talk. And with that, Mary got nervous and said she'd tell them everything she knew if they made a deal with her. And they agreed. So when they brought Mary down to the police station, they promised her immunity from any charges, and she told detectives her boyfriend Joe was hired by Bob to kill Farah. She even said she and Farah were gem buddies once upon a time, and that she was real nice. She added Joe got their neighbor, Howard Gidry, to be the trigger man, and they were both supposed to be paid $1,000, and Joe was to give a jeep given to them by Bob. She added Bob was going to take his children on Wednesday to church, and that's when they were going to wait for her, and that's when they were going to kill her. She then waited for Joe to return. When Joe came back, she questioned him if Farah was dead. He told her yes, and then she questioned him if he was sure, and Joe said yes because he saw her. Then the two had sex.
By March 1, 1995, Howard Guidry was arrested after a bank robbery. At the time of his arrest, he had three weapons in his backpack, one of which was a 38 caliber revolver. After his arrest, detectives in Forrest's case got a hold of the revolver Howard had. A registration check on Guidry's revolver indicated that it had been purchased by Bob Frada in 1982. A Houston Police Department firearms examiner subsequently testified that one of the bullet fragments recovered from Farah's garage had been fired from the revolver, pretty much confirming Howard was indeed involved with the murder. When he was questioned, a report stated that Howard confessed and told police the following, quote, On the night of November 4th, 1994, he and Joseph Pristash, then 38, drove by Farah's house and then to a nearby grocery store where there was a payphone. They tested the payphone with their mobile phone, then Joseph dropped Howard off with the revolver and mobile phone at Farah's house. Howard climbed the fence into the backyard and waited inside the children's playhouse. After waiting a while, Howard called the payphone where Joseph was waiting to report that Farah had not arrived home. Joseph instructed him to keep waiting. A short time later, Farah drove up. Howard left the playhouse. He tried to open the side door to the garage, but it was locked, so he went around to the front. When Farah opened her car door, he shot her one time in the head. She fell to the floor, but was still moving, so he shot her a second time in the head. He then returned to the playhouse and called Joseph. He then climbed over the fence and waited for Joseph to pick him up. He then gave the revolver back to Joseph. End quote. When Joe was finally brought in, he confessed as well and named Bob as the mastermind of the murder. After both confessions, both Howard and Joe were both charged and arrested for capital murder. And finally, after several months of investigating, in April 1995, police charged and arrested Robert Bob Frada for his wife's murder. By the time his trial was to begin, the prosecution was depending on Joe and Howard to be star witnesses and testify against Bob. But they said they felt they were forced into confessing and refused to testify against him. Since detectives gave Mary immunity, prosecutors had to call to the stand a witness to back up Mary's details of the conspiracy. Someone who would have had to seen Bob making all those phone calls the night of the murder. And they did. Prosecution called to the stand Bob's oldest son, eight-year-old Bradley. Bradley testified that he remembered his father making several phone calls on the night of the murder while they were at church. And that as they were ready to leave church, Bob told his kids to stay in the car while he made another phone call. After Bradley testified, the jury rested, and in April 1996, Robert Frada was found guilty of his estranged wife, Farah's murder. 
and on May 3, 1996, he was sentenced to death. Eventually, Howard Gittry and Joseph Pristash were also found guilty of capital murder, and they too were sentenced to death. After Bob was sent away, he and Farah's children were adopted by Lex and Betty Backer, and eventually the children's last names changed from Frada to their last name. Meanwhile, years after his guilty verdict, Bob successfully appealed his case in 2007 after a federal judge decided in 2007 to throw out Bob's conviction, ruling that prosecutors misused hearsay evidence and investigators blatantly violated Howard Gittry's civil rights in order to obtain a confession. The decision prompted another trial, but Bob and Howard were again convicted and sentenced to death in 2009. Bob also lost another appeal attempt in 2018. In December 2022, Bob and two other inmates filed a lawsuit claiming the drugs used for lethal injection in the state of Texas were expired and could, quote, act unpredictably, obstruct IV lines during the execution, and cause unnecessary pain, end quote. However, by January 2023, even though his lawsuit was still ongoing, Bob Frada's death warrant was signed. And on January 8th, he gave an interview to local news about his pending execution. In part, Bob said, quote, It's been kind of an enlightening experience, as far as I know. I never gave any thought to the death penalty even though I was a police officer. Now that I'm going through it, I can understand how so ridiculously tormenting it is for the inmates to be put through this. To have you knowing the day and time and everything that you're going to die, and it's just prolonged, and everything that they put you through beforehand, this is torture. End quote. And on January 10th, 2023, shortly after 7 p.m., Bob was led to the death chamber. After he was strapped on the gurney, a minister prayed over him. A warden questioned him if he had a final statement, and he said no. Then the lethal dose was given to him, and at 7.49 p.m., Robert Frada was pronounced dead by lethal injection and his death was witnessed by Farah's brother and Farah and Bob's own son, Bradley, who Bob didn't even acknowledge while he was being put to death. And it said Bob's body was donated to science. Howard Gidry and Joseph Pristash remain on death row. The story of the tragic end of Farah Frada comes from the sources of the Associated Press, Newsweek, the Houston Chronicle, and others I'll put in the notes.
All right. That was a gross one. Like I mentioned, it was at least gross to me. Very sad, very pathetic, very just horrible how um, Farah's life was cha- uh, was taken. A very sweet mother, from all I gathered, who loved her husband and wanted to try to make her hus- her marriage work until the very end, until she could not handle it anymore. And I have a few things to say about that. And the first being Mary and the fellow gym goers at this point. Because they had all the clues there. They knew about Bob wanting Farah dead, yet no one did anything. Mary, especially because the killer, the middleman, was in her home. And she knew that he and Bob planned Farah's murder. And that he was only going to get $1,000 and a Jeep. Like $1,000 and a Jeep for a life? Really? And you knew about it? And you knew Farah? And you said she was even nice? And you were gym buddies together? Like, what part of the game is that? Like, what type of girl code is that? Was she afraid of James herself? Like, why couldn't she stop it? Why didn't she go to the police? Why didn't she say anything? The kids would still have a mother if she would have said something. But she didn't say anything. As long as, as well as Bob's gym buddies, because there was at least 12 of them who said that to the detectives that Bob came to them asking if they knew anyone who could kill Farah or that if they would do it themselves themselves and he would pay thousands of dollars but they thought he was just blowing off steam not to 12 different people no no he was pissed he was on a mission he wanted Farah dead he didn't want to pay child support he was possibly still mad that she even left him because from what I read um Bob was the ultimate narcissist, like no woman ever left him and the mother of his kids left him. No, not him. He was not going to he didn't handle that well, especially he thought his kids are going to be taken away from him, too, and to pay all that money because he said he was broke. So, yeah, I blame every like people who had an opportunity to say something and didn't. And I couldn't really find anything about Bob's background. Um, I know that he was born in New York but that's about it. I knew nothing about his family, except maybe I think I read that Bob's father died when he was young, but that's all I know. And I don't know why he kept transferring from different airports. I don't know if it's because of discipline or adventure. I don't know. And actually what little background I did get from him was a website Bob created while on death row. And it's kind of interesting. He has a lot of run on sentences and a lot of it's like he's ranting, but he he tried until the end to get his case heard and to get off death row, but that didn't work. And um, he said he wasn't attracted to her, he said, but thought she could treat him well. Like he wasn't attracted to her, but in his mind, Bob thought she would do anything for his, him as beck and call. That sounds like narcissistic behavior to me. I'm not a psychologist, but he felt that Far would treat him like the king of the world and do whatever he said, including those gross sexual things. Well, let me take that back. I think it's gross. I'm not king shaming, but Far thought it was gross. And like he abused her like Oh, it was just so gross from what I read about him. And I don't know why he felt he could like why he felt that she needed to treat him the best. I mean, I know he's she was his spouse, but was he like abused when he was younger because he wanted her to treat him well, like treat him well in his own mind or treat him well overall? I don't know. It's just because I saw an interview with him on YouTube saying that she uh, she he thought that she would treat him well, whatever that means. And like I said, whatever your sexual kink is, you do you. But I believe Farah had a right to leave 
And since she was uncomfortable with what Bob was apparently asking her to do sexually, um, and when he got mad, Farah discussed this in court. Duh, she had a reason why she wanted it. She had to give a reason as to why she wanted a divorce. And regarding the masked man with the stun gun, although that person has never been caught, I do believe like Farah and the detective thought that Bob was behind it and didn't even care his children were home to witness it. Like what type, what is that? Like that's messed up and scary. And I also read that during the divorce, like right after Farah filed for divorce, things were tampered with at her home. Drawers were pulled out, things were stolen. And I wonder if Bob was, Bob actually wanted those things, if he was behind it or he allegedly did it to uh, scare her because he was so pissed at her. And like I said, again, $1,000 and a Jeep for a life. Like, what is that? that? That's so gross. And Howard, he's only 18 years old when he committed it. So he's been on death row pretty much ever since, like a life wasted. He he just was a life of crime. I don't know his backstory, but I just don't think like you're, he threw his life away. It's so, so young and threw away far as life because of a little thousand dollars. Now, I know when I was 18, a thousand dollars was a lot. And to a lot of people, that is a lot to how no matter no matter the age, but for a life, it's not a lot. It's it's just no money's worth a life taken. And oh, it just frustrates me so much. And I think Bob knew he was guilty, but he fought to the end, like I said, to try and prove something he was not, which was innocent. Because all signs point to him. Like who else would want Farah dead? I, I it's I don't think it's anyone except him, except Bob. And after he died, it's mentioned on his find a grave website, the website that his body was donated to medical science. But I don't know if that was his choice or what or why he would do that. But I mean, that's what find a grave says. I couldn't find another source to back it up. And it's nothing really. It doesn't really matter, like if he was buried or not or given to medical science. I just thought it was an interesting fact. I don't know if Bob maybe thought he had something wrong with him mentally and wanted his brain to be studied. But I don't know who would read the study. I, I don't know. But also another memorial site, which threw me for a loop, painted him in a positive light, like saying things like he was a beautiful soul and a doting father. And I do believe maybe once upon a time he was a doting father um, because there's pictures of him on the internet with his three kids and they look at him like they love this man, like they love their father but after he took his their mother's life away, it, I think it went left. I think it went, you know, there was no, there was love lost because, you know, they, he took his mother, their mother's life away. And apparently during another interview I saw with Bob, he said he was pretty much betrayed by Bradley back when, you know, he was talking about him dope, like in a dope, like a doubtful father. But then he said until when he treated me well, again, he treated him well, like he's a narcissist, like it's all about me. It's all about me, Bob. And um, when Bradley uh, testified, for some reason, Bob thought it was just the ultimate betrayal. And he didn't even acknowledge Bradley at the death chamber, like acted like he wasn't there and didn't say sorry or anything. I'm hoping he didn't notice Bradley was there, but I think he did notice. I don't know how the death penalty, the death chamber works. I don't know if you. You can see witnesses in front of you or to the side of you or the back of you. I don't know. But apparently he knew Bradley was there and still did not acknowledge his son. So it's just all a sad, sad mess. It's very 
heartbreaking. And yes, I did put handsome devil. Don't come for me because I, okay, I sort of found Bob Frada kind of attractive when he was younger, kind of attractive. And so did a lot of other women. So that's why I put handsome devil. And in another um, interview I saw um, about uh, Bob that in the comments, they said he looked like a Ken doll with the soul of Chucky. That's saying a lot. That's, that's horrible, but that's saying a lot. And um, yeah, that's it. Thank you for tuning in to this brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you found this case interesting, although it was kind of intense, gross, and scary and sad. Um, if you liked what you heard, meaning the content of the show, and you haven't done so, please rate the show on Apple or Spotify since they have a rating system. I'd really appreciate it. Um, I hope you hope you're nice to me because, like I said, I do um, work really hard, believe it or not, and I do try my hardest to do the show the best I can. Um, but I know there's always room for improvement. Um, also, I have released a few new YouTube videos. So if you haven't checked those out, please do and let me know what you think. So with that, stay safe and healthy. And I'll see you soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time.